All right, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7 and chapter 3. We're going to stay in the same book. I've done that two weeks in a row now, guys. I'm getting good at this. Uh, And today we're beginning a brand new series called I Am David. Now, David is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. If you guys ever went to Sunday school, you probably saw David and Goliath on a felt board. And you saw, you learned the stories and the songs, and you learned about his mighty men and all those cool things. Uh, And actually, with my son Eason, we have a a Jesus storybook Bible, and we're always trying to go through that and read the different stories. But he was like, no, Dad, I want to read about David. Like, every single night, he wants to read about David. And we had to reenact him fighting Goliath. And so, like, I've had to modify it because I don't want to tell him at the end David cuts off his head and carries it into town. So he throws a stone and knocks him down, and then David goes over, gives him a hug and kiss, and says, I'm sorry, let's never fight again and be best friends. That's the three-year-old version of David and Goliath. But we look at David, and we like him because we see that God says, this is a man that's after my own heart. And that's what I want to be. If there is one thing that God says of me, or one thing that God thinks of me, I would love to have him say, you are a man after my own heart. On my tombstone someday, that would be the best thing that could ever be on there. Jeremy Brown was a man who was after God's own heart. That's what I want my life to be like. And that's why as we come and we look at the story of David and we do a character study of him, we do this because we see in him someone who embodies so many things. God used him to do great things. He had a passion for God that was unlike anyone else that we read about in the Old Testament. But he's also an awful lot like us because he wasn't just someone who did awesome, incredible things and followed God so closely. He made some huge mistakes. He did some really, really bad things. And that makes it a lot easier to relate to him than some of the other people who read about in the Bible. But in spite of his shortcomings, in spite of the fact that he disobeyed God at times and did terrible things, he was someone that kept coming back. He was someone that kept returning back to God. No matter what it was that happened, he was repentant. He said, God, forgive me. I'm coming back to you. I want to follow you. And that's the way that we can live our lives too. You don't have to be someone that's perfect. You have to be someone that when you fall down, you get back up. Of when you stray away from God, you say, I'm sorry, God, forgive me. I'm coming back after you, and I'm coming back after your heart. And if you do that, you can be someone who God says, you are a person that's after my own heart. Now, before we can get into the story of David, though, it's funny, this is something that I would totally do. Is I'm going to start a story on David, and we're not going to actually talk about him today. Before you can understand the story of David, you really had to get an idea of what's going on in the world that David exists in. And to understand that, we have to go back and start with a man named Eli. Now, Eli was someone who was known for two things. Number one, he was a priest, and during his priesthood, he recognized a young boy named Samuel and raised him up to be a priest. Samuel grew up to be a great prophet, a priest himself. He was the one who anointed David to be the king over Israel. Uh, Samuel did incredible things. Eli did a great job of training up Samuel to be a priest and to follow God. But the other thing that he's known for is he was a terrible father, who raised worthless sons. And I'm not joking. It says this. In 1 Samuel 2.12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now that's, that's not one of those things you think that God's going to say about someone. That doesn't seem nice. It doesn't seem polite. But God is saying, These sons of Eli, they were worthless men, and they didn't know me. 
Now, when he says they're worthless, it doesn't mean that God didn't value them. It doesn't mean that they weren't loved by God, that they weren't even cherished by God. What the word worthless there means is that they had no worth when it came to righteous things. It meant that they were wicked people. They did really bad things. They didn't do good things. You don't have to do good things for God to love you and to value you. But you might not have a lot of worth when it comes to righteous matters. And that's a big problem, especially because they were priests. His sons were supposed to be those who were leading others to God, who were helping other people connect with God and hear from them themselves. But instead, they were doing a couple of really bad things. And the first is that when people would come to the temple to give an offering, they would go and they would take this offering from them. Like, so if you're bringing some food as a grain offering to God, they'd come and say, hey, give that to me instead. And you say, no, this is an offering for God. And it says they would take it from them by force. So people are coming to give gifts to God and they're beating them up and taking their stuff from them. It's a big problem when you're a priest. And then the other thing that they're doing is they're sleeping with the women who are there serving at the temple. And in this culture and in this time, it wasn't like most likely consensual. It was they were taking advantage. They were abusers. Also a problem for anybody, and if you're a priest, even more so. So what's happened is you have these two guys whose dad is someone who greatly loves God, who's able to train someone else to follow God, but his faith isn't enough for his own children. And that's something for all of you as parents, is that no matter how much you love Jesus, your kids have to have their own encounter with him. You have to train your kid, you have to discipline your child so that they will walk in the ways of the Lord, because if you don't do that, they can't live off of that faith. They have to have that for themselves. And the other thing about them, not only were they worthless, but it says that they did not know the Lord. Now, obviously, as priests, they had some intellectual knowledge of who God was. It wasn't that they, they never heard of him. They agreed that Yahweh was God. They agreed that he was the only God. He was the creator of all things. But their relationship with him was a cultural formality. There was no love for God in them. There was no reverence. There was no honor for God inside of him. You see, God created us to have an intimate, loving relationship with him. But you can take that and you can turn that into something else, where it's more of an intellectual thing. Like, I know that we have a president, his name is Barack Obama, but I don't know him. We never get together. He doesn't know anything about me. I don't know anything about him. There's a formality relationship there because he's the leader of my country, but I don't know him. And here's the problem is that when you come and you start serving God, you can do things. Like they were in the temple, they were probably tithers, they were making their offerings, they were doing work serving in the temple, but because they didn't have a heart for God, they weren't really doing anything for him out of a heart motive. It was all just what they had to do. It was what was expected of them. But there was no love there was in their service. It was just about how they could provide for their own needs. And that's what happens too many times. Is you can serve God, and view your service to him as a means to your own end. This is something I grew up very familiar with. My parents are both in full-time ministry. I grew up a ministry brat. And they, they ran a Christian campground, and they had a heart for it because every year, all year long, they're working hard, they're sacrificing, they're doing everything they can to create a place where kids can come and they can encounter the life-changing presence of God. And through that, I mean, they saw hundreds of kids every single year put their faith in Jesus and make him Lord of their life. And my dad's been doing this for over 30 years now, and he has people that will stop by every now and then, and they'll just stop in and they'll say, hey, you don't know me, I'm sure you don't remember me, but when I was 12 years old, I came here, and I was down there, and I came down by the cross, and I gave my heart to Jesus. 
and it's changed my life. I mean, it's awesome hearing stories like that and seeing that happen. But for me, I grew up in this, so to me, I never really viewed it as ministry. To me, it was the family business. It was what we did. It was what I had to do because my parents made me do chores and help out around camp. But to me, the big motivation for me was that there was a pool, which I loved. There was a soft-serve ice cream machine, which, oh my goodness, every kid should have one of those. And there was an unlimited supply of fudgesicles and fruit roll-ups. So here's how I viewed camp. To me, camp wasn't ministry. To my parents, it was, but to me, it wasn't. To me, it was, I had this huge, awesome pool and a water slide, and every now and then, these other kids would be using it, and I'd get mad. Like, what are you doing in my pool? Do you guys know who I am? I'm Jeremy Brown. Get out of my pool. Or I'd view it as, you know, a source of income when I started working there. I didn't view it as, I'm so passionate about seeing people come to know Jesus, and I'm passionate about cleaning toilets, because even though this is a menial, degrading job in most eyes, through this act of service, I'm making it so other people can have an encounter with Jesus. I didn't view it like that. It was money, it was a pool, it was ice cream, and it was lots and lots of fudgesicles and fruit roll-ups. And I remember my parents, they'd find out, like, hey, don't eat, like, eat one fudgesicle a day. Don't eat 12. And so then I'd start stealing them. I was like the worthless sons of Eli. I was, you know, stealing fudgesicles and eating them. And I'd get mad when I got caught because this camp was all about how could I get my desires met. I had a formality relationship with God. I didn't have a heart for him. I didn't have a heart for other people. I was just doing everything from the standpoint of how can I better myself. And many people, that's how it is for them. You might do something to serve God, but it's out of the wrong heart. There's no love, there's no honor, there's no reverence for who God is. There's no passion for seeing his kingdom come, for seeing the lost found, for seeing broken hearts mended and put back together. It can be something that you do out of a sense of obligation. Or like me, you can be a real jerk and and use it as a way to to get fat and sugared up. But what God's looking for when you come and serve him is he's looking at the heart that's behind it. That's not as much about what you do as the reason why you're doing it. And that's what's beautiful to God. That's what's pleasing to him. And in a church plant like us, you know, I'm just telling you guys, hey, we need more help. We don't want help for people that are just doing it because they have to. We want help from people that say, I love Jesus and I want other people to encounter Jesus in the way that I have because I know what he's capable of doing in my life. And I'm willing to lay myself down now as a servant so that other people can have these encounters with God that will change their lives forever. And as we look at these sons of Eli, what we see is, It's not just limited to these two bad sons, but really, you can look at them and it gives you an idea of what the general spiritual shape of the nation of Israel is. God has been the one that gave them everything they had. He brought them into the promised land. He defeated all of their enemies before them. He's been their provision. He's been their protection. He's elevated them as a nation. And so now, it comes down to looking at us like, God owes us something. God, you're the one that you're you know, the, the genie in the sky that I make my wishes to and, and you give me everything that I want. But there was no heart for God anymore in them. It became a religious formality and their hearts began to drift and they began to worship other gods. And as this happens, it happens during a time when the Philistines are their main enemy. 
Now, for a long time, God's been just miraculously protecting them because they've been following him closely. The presence of God has been there with them. And when the presence of God is there, you can expect God to do miraculous things. But now the Philistines gather, and they're coming to attack Israel again. And Israel gathers up, and they're getting ready for war. And they go to camp at a place, a town called Ebenezer. And even the name of the town is significant. Ebenezer means the stone of help. See, when they came into Israel, they came in and... They fought in a weird way. They would go and they had the musicians go first, which if you know anything about war, that's, that's the worst people in the whole world that you can put in the front lines of a battle. The musicians, keep them in the back. And then after the musicians, they had the priest. Now, I'm kind of an embodiment of both of those things. You don't want me fighting for you. You will lose. But this is the way Israel fought. The, okay, so you got the worship leaders are up here and they're singing on their tambourines and they're jumping up and down and leaping. And then you've got the priests behind them carrying the Ark of the Covenant and then the soldiers are back behind all of them. And they would go into battle this way and God would fight the battle for them and win it for them. Oftentimes the soldiers never even did anything. God just fought the battle for them and they walked victoriously into it. And so they go there and they name this town Ebenezer, that God is the rock, the one who's been our help. He delivered this town over to us. And so now they're getting ready to go to war again and they're expecting to be just like every other time that God's going to go out there and we're going to be victorious. But they go out to fight the Philistines and they lose 4,000 men. They get licked. And they come back and they say, why did God defeat us before the Philistines today. They didn't say, why did the Philistines beat us? They said, why did God defeat us? This is a new experience for us. And they say, I know what happened. We didn't take the Ark of the Covenant with us because that's where God's presence is. And so they said, well, let's get the Ark out here and we're going to go back out there and we're going to fight again and we're going to you know, show those Philistines what's up. So they go get the Ark and they take it out there and they go into battle again and they're just sure that God's going to come out and fight for them. And they lose 40,000 soldiers. It says that everybody that survives this battle, they all flee to their homes. And the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's physical presence resided on earth at this time, was captured by the Philistines. And all across the nation, they begin to mourn. And it recounts one of Eli's daughter-in-laws. She hears about all this, that her husbands were lost in the battle. Uh, Eli, when he heard what had happened to his sons, he fell over, broke his neck, and died. And so his daughter-in-law hears this, and she gives birth to her child, sends her into labor, she gives birth to a child, and she gives the child a name that means the glory of God has left Israel. And this is how the entire nation feels. God has abandoned us. You see, they thought that they had the presence of God there with them in everything they were doing. They didn't realize what had happened. They didn't realize that their relationship with God was no longer a deep, intimate love for him that motivated everything they did. They didn't know that it was just a cultural formality for them now. See, the presence of God wasn't in their life and they didn't even know it. But when you get to a point of crisis, that's where it starts to become evident. And that's what happened for the Israelites They had been living their lives without knowing God. And they didn't even know that. Not until they hit this moment of crisis. And so for the next 20 years, it says that they lament. And they begin to call out to God again. Because they recognize that the way they're living now is not the way that they want to live. That in the hour of need, that God wasn't there for them. 
because they hadn't been spending their life pursuing God to invite his presence into their lives. And then after 20 years, God raises up someone, a man named Samuel, who we've been talking about. And he tells them uh, in, in Samuel 7, 3-6, And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth, and they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered everyone there, and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. Now, even though they had walked away from God, God was still calling them back to him. And that's the beautiful thing about God, is there is nothing that you can do. There is no amount of ignoring him or sinning against him, rebelling or rejecting him that will ever make him stop loving you, that will ever stop him from calling you and saying, you were created to be my son, you were created to be my daughter, you were created to know me, and I'm calling you to come back to me. You haven't gone too far, I haven't rejected you. Come back to me. And that's the message of Samuel to all of them. Is that you come back to me. My presence will fill you again. And then I will get up and I will fight for you. I will deliver you from the hands of your enemies. Now we don't fight a lot of Philistines these days. They aren't you know, going around bullying us and taking our lunch money from us anymore. But we still fight spiritual enemies every single day of our life. We all have different ones that we struggle with. And it might be something for you that's like greed. You love money, you love materialism, you love stuff, and that's keeping you in bondage. And you know what God's called you to, but it's something that's just holding you down and it keeps you from following it. And as you continue to be dominated by greed in your life, it takes you farther and farther away from what God's called you to. Or maybe it's hopelessness in your life. Maybe you feel there's no hope. Maybe you live in a state of despair every single day. Maybe you have no joy in your life. Maybe you have a problem with pride or lust or anger or whatever else it might be. Maybe there are forces that are coming against you right now, relationships. Who knows what it might be? But you know what it is that's going on in your life. And what God is saying to you is that if you will come back to him, that he will rise up and he will deliver you from every enemy that you are facing. That he will be the one. It's not that you have to stand up and fight. You've been trying that for a long time and it's not working out well. But he will come and he will stand up and he will fight for you as you return to him. As you come back to committing your life to saying, God, I want to know you. It says that God comes back to us. So then, how do we return to God? I have a couple things I'm going to share with you uh, this morning before we leave that I think will really help you learn. How is it that you either for the first time turn to God or how is it that if you've allowed some space in your relationship to develop, if you've kind of drifted away from God and you didn't even know it until a moment of crisis hit, how is it then that you can return to God? And the first thing that God said is that you return to him with all your heart. What is God looking for from us? He says this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. This is what Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, if you want to have a deep and intimate relationship with God, where everything you're doing in your life is motivated out of that love for him, where you walk with that confidence and the assurance of God's love for you, it's something that you have to be all in on. 
Now, the closest thing that we can understand to the relationship that God has with us is marriage, honestly. That's why he keeps talking about we, the church, are his bride. That's the way that he loves us, like a spouse loves their other, the other half. Like a husband loves their wife, or a wife loves her husband in a sacrificial way. And in a marriage, you can't go into it saying, I'm going to give half my heart to you and expect to have an intimate, passionate marriage. You have to be 100% committed. Your whole heart has to be for your husband or for your wife. Everything has to be in. And if you hold back part of it, you will have a, a, a terrible marriage. And it's the same way with God. Is you can't go halfway in on a relationship with God. It's something that you have to dive into. You have to turn to him and you have to turn to him alone where every part of you say, God, I'm not holding anything back from you. All of me is yours now. And God, I want all of you. That's the only way that you can have that kind of relationship with him where you can say, I know God. He speaks to me. I've, an, I've experienced his love for me. I know the great grace and mercy and passion that he has for me. And now out of that, I have an eternal love for him that burns inside of me where I want him and only him. What happens is we treat God kind of like a, a pool, you ever seen the people? There's two ways that you get in a pool. There's the people that come in, like my mom does this. She puts one toe in, she's like, whoo, there. And then she puts like one toe in, and then she puts the ankle in, and then she puts the other ankle in on the step. And two hours later, she's up to her waist in the pool. And then it's time to get out. So you never really get to just go in and enjoy the pool. What I would do is I was, I'd get to the diving board, and I'd run, and I'd cannonball, and I'd try to splash everybody around me. And it was cold for a second, but you adjust so fast. But that's the only way that you can encounter God. That's the only way that you can have a marriage that you want. That's the only way you can have the relationship with God that you want. You can't treat God like the car that you're taking for a test drive. Because when there's no ownership involved in that, when there's no commitment involved in it, you will never know God. And the second thing is that, I'm oh sorry, in Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. The only way that you find God in a deep and intimate way is when you begin to search for him with all of your heart. Not a piece of your heart, not a portion of your heart, with all of it. And then number two is you have to turn away. God says, I want you to turn to me and turn away from these other gods. Now, if I've been heading in this direction that's leading me to destruction and God's behind me calling me, I can't turn towards him without turning away from what it was that I was going after. And that's the way it is with our life, is that you're following something right now. There is something that you're going after. There are gods that you have in your life, and we don't carve little statues anymore and worship them and hope that's going to give us a good harvest or happiness or whatever. But... We still have idols in our life. We have gods that we have erected because there are things that we're looking for that only God can provide us with. And we think, maybe my career will give me a sense of purpose. But God's the only one that can give you a sense of purpose. You can fulfill that purpose in your career. But if you're chasing after your career instead of chasing after God because you're looking for purpose, that's become an idol in your life that you need to turn away from. There are all sorts of things that we do to try to fill ourselves with joy, different substances and things we do, pursuit of pleasure, because we're looking for joy. And there are, we can enjoy a whole lot of things in this world that God has made for us, but if you're looking for the things to bring you joy instead of turning to God and looking to him to be your source of joy, then you'll never find joy. And whatever it is you've been looking to, that's become an idol and a God in your life that you have to turn away from. 
And for the Israelites, as he's speaking to this, there's a lot of sin that's going on in association with the idols that they're serving. And God is saying that you have to turn away from these idols. You have to turn away from the sin that's been associated with serving them. And you have to turn back and follow me if you want to know me, if you want to have a deep relationship with me. And it's the same for all of us. There are sins that we have in our life, maybe things that we've never even thought of as bad before, but now in light of God's calling in our life, we recognize there are some things I have to turn away from. There are some things that I have to leave behind if I want to follow God. And so many people, what happens is you try to, you know, to follow God while keeping some of the stuff from your old life with you still, and that never works. It'd be like if I pulled out my contacts and started calling up some of my old girlfriends, hey, let's go out on a date while I'm still married to my wife. What's going to happen to my marriage? When I made the decision to marry my wife, I decided I was turning away from everybody else and I was turning solely towards her and I was leaving everything else behind. And there's a reason why I deleted every single contact from every ex-girlfriend that I've ever had. It was because I found the one who was better. I found someone that was worth leaving everything else behind for. And it has to get to that point for us in our relationship with God where we say, there was a way that I used to live my life, and I might have enjoyed it, I might have hated it, whatever, but it was leading me to destruction. There were old things I was looking to that couldn't provide for me what only God can give me. There were things I was doing to try to achieve things that were sinful, and I have to leave those behind if I'm going to follow God and find everything that he's created me for. So you have to get to that point in your life, though, where you recognize that what God has to offer is worth so much more and the old life that you had was really so wretched in comparison that you're willing to, to gladly leave everything else behind. And that's what Israel found themselves at. Like, look, man, our life is terrible now all of a sudden. We're getting killed by Philistines. They're ruling over us. Locusts are eating our food. We have nothing going on. This old life has nothing for me and I'm going to turn and I'm going to leave all of it behind so that I can follow Jesus. And that's what we have to do too, is you come to that moment of crisis in your life where you say, God isn't just some add-on accessory to me that's going to make my life better. It's he is my life. Everything I need is found inside of him. And now I'm going to walk away from everything else so that I can have everything that he has for me. Ephesians 4.22 says, Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. See, the reason that I made the decision to go all in on God was because I got to that point of where I realized that my life that I've been trying to live on my own wasn't taking me anywhere that I wanted to be. And that was the best decision I've ever made. It was a hard decision. It's a decision I continue to make every day because there'll still be temptation that comes up and distractions that try to get your mind off of Jesus. But every day I make that decision and say, no, I remember what life was like. I'm never coming to that moment of crisis in my life again. From here on out, it's me and Jesus. And if I lose everything else, I'm okay with that. Because if I have Jesus, I have everything that I need. And then, um, number three, you have to direct your hearts. Uh, direct, actually just a minute, Mike, sorry. Direct your hearts uh, means that you have to move towards a goal. That's what the word direct means. You have to, it's like with a GPS. If you see where you are and where you want to go, you have to move in the direction of the place you're trying to get to. I've made a gazillion New Year's resolutions in my life. Honorable ones, good ones, th- ones I definitely should have done. 
But it never happened. Why? Because I never directed myself towards that. Trying to get in shape. So what do you do? You go out there and you buy a home gym or you buy Insanity DVDs. I took the first step. I spent money, but then I never actually used the stuff. So I haven't really directed myself towards that. And what happens is we have to make that decision of that I'm going to direct my heart towards God. Not only am I going to turn towards him and turn away from everything else, but now I'm going to continue to make conscious decisions that will direct me towards the direction of God that will bring me closer and closer to him relationally. And we see a great example of that in Samuel. Eli's sons, they were the opposite example of this. But in Samuel, we see someone who directed his heart towards the Lord. And this is the way he did it. It says that he ministered to God. The first thing we read about Samuel is he's at the temple and it says that he's ministering before the Lord. And several times in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, see Eli's sons are out there doing stupid stuff, but Samuel is sitting there and it says ministering before the Lord. And what that means is that he's waiting on God. A lot of times what we do is we come to God and we're looking for blessings. We say, God, I want you to bless my life. I need blah, 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 blah. But when you minister to the Lord, what it's saying is I'm going to come to God and I'm going to bless him. One of the best ways that I build my relationship with my wife and feel close to her is I tell her how much I love her. I spend time serving her, waiting on her. I'm looking for ways that I can bless her and it's the same for us and God. If you want to direct your heart towards him, spend time ministering to him. Worship him. Spend time every day just being amazed by God's goodness. I throw on songs on my, on my speakers and I spend you know, three or four worship songs in the morning just focusing and praising God and telling him how much I love him. I serve him. I pray. I spend time just waiting on God and ministering to him. Number two is that Samuel positioned himself. He was so passionate about God and his presence and ministering to him that he would sleep in the temple by the ark because he wanted to be as close to God as he possibly could be. And it was one night while he was sitting there by the ark asleep that God spoke to him for the first time because he positioned himself to be close to God. And that's something we need to do too. You have to create moments in your life, position yourself in the presence of God where you allow him to speak to you. Quiet moments where you've been worshiping God and blessing him, where you've been ministering to him and now take some time to step back and allow him to speak to you. And then thirdly, he was obedient. Through everything that, that God asked him to do, even when he didn't understand why it was that God was asking him, when he didn't understand why God had called him to live in this way, he was obedient to everything that God called him to do. And the result of that is listed in 1 Samuel chapter 3. It says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. See, when you live a life returning to God, when you live a life with your heart directed after God, the result of it is that God himself will establish you. You won't have to establish yourself in ministry. You won't have to establish yourself in the things that God's called you to do. He is the one who will do that for you. And then number two is that when you turn your heart towards God, he reveals himself to you. How incredible is that? It says that God revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. Is that what you want for your life? Do you want God to continue to reveal himself? 
You know, I learn more about my wife every day. I've been married going on 10 years, and every day I learn more and more about her. There's no limit to what you can learn about someone, and even more so for the all-powerful God. There is no limit to what he can reveal of himself to you. Every day of your life, there's a new revelation of his goodness, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his strength for you. And he wants to reveal that to you. But you have to direct your heart after God. And as you do that, as you seek after him, you find him. When you turn towards God, he's there and he rises up and he fights your enemies for you. When you seek him, you find him. When you draw near to him, it says that he draws near to you. God's already done everything that needs to be done for you to have a thriving, healthy, intimate relationship with God where you know his presence, you know his voice in your life. That's how much he loved you, is that Jesus on the cross bore every sin, everything that came between us and God, and he removed it from us so that we can live as sons and daughters. And all we have to do is respond to that. Say, God, I want to know you. I want your presence in my life. You guys stand with me this morning. Let's pray together. I believe this morning the call that God has for us is the same call that he gave to Israel. He wants us to turn towards him. He wants us to return to him. Whether that be for the first time, whether there's some distance in your relationship with him right now, or even if you're following Jesus passionately, he still wants you to know even more of himself. He wants to reveal even more. And so this is a question for you guys this morning that God is asking you. Will you turn to him? Will you turn away from everything else in your life that's become a God or an idol to you? And will you direct your heart after him? Father, this morning we pray that you would search our hearts and that you would know us. And God, that you would make an honest evaluation and let us know how is our relationship with you? Is it intimate and passionate, full of life? Do we know you? Or has it become a cultural formality for us? Jesus, we want to know that before a moment of crisis. If this morning God's speaking to you and he's calling you back to newness in your relationship with him, then respond to that. God, would you reveal the things that we need to turn away from? Jesus, would you show us the way that we need to direct our heart towards you? And Jesus, we pray that as we turn towards you, that you would rise up and that you would fight our battles, that you would be the victorious God. Jesus, we pray that as we draw near to you, that you would draw near to us. God, that you continue to open our eyes to see how great your love is for us. God, we don't want to live our lives as a people who feel far from you or distant from you, but we want to live every moment, every second of our life aware that you are with us. Jesus, being held in the palm of your hand. 
God, thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to us. And we pray now that you would fill us with your Spirit, God, that you would pour it out fresh and new on us this day. The very power, the very presence, the person of God dwelling amongst us, speaking to us, leading us, guiding us, empowering us. Jesus, we don't want to live feeling distant from you. We want to hear your voice. And God, from this day forward, we want to hear you speak to us. We want to know what it's like to live a life that's led by you and guided by you. Jesus, we don't want to live in a spiritual desert, but we want rains of refreshing to come from you and to water us. Jesus, we want to grow in you. We want to be established in you. We want you to reveal yourself to us. So this morning, God, we hold nothing back. And we turn fully towards you. Jesus, you said that we as a people are marked and defined by your presence in our lives. So God, would you brand us with your presence? Make us a new people, Jesus. Lead us into the new life that you've made available to us through the cross. Forgive us of every sin. And Jesus, we elevate you to the Lord of our life. And we humbly follow you this day in all the days of our life. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.